0: Hello, and welcome to this, the second of this series of podcasts brought to you by AGRA, the Association of Genealogists and Researchers in Archives. I'm Nick Serple, and I'll be chairing a discussion today with our panel on Chancery Court Records and Equity. Now, many family historians shy away from these in the belief they are somehow difficult to access and to understand. But this podcast is designed to explain how that certainly isn't the case, and how vitally important they are in building your family tree, and will also outline what they have to offer. Joining me are three experts in the field. Susan Moore, who's been researching equity records for most of her career, and whose book, Tracing Your Ancestors Through the Equity Courts, is a mine of information. Lorraine Whale has researched extensively in the archives, and Sarah Pettifer has tips on how and where you can find them. Susan, if I could start with you, what do we mean when we talk about equity courts?
1: The courts of equity were a civil court. They dealt with one person suing another over a private matter. And disputes could arise over all sorts of family matters, such as wills and marriage settlements. And Because of that, an understanding of deeds is fairly essential to be able to get to grips with these records. I would say that Chancery Records, definitely my favourite source, my go-to source for any sort of family history. It's the first place I look. Because you get the relationships all sorted out in one go, you'll find many records will start with my great grandfather did such and such. The records are also incredibly useful if you've got three, four John Smiths in your family and you don't know which is which. You think there are three. Actually, there are four. And again, Chancery Records can clarify that very clearly. But what you need to be able to understand a chance record, you need to be able to speak English. The records are in English. They're not in Latin. You need to have a family that lived sometime after the Middle Ages. And the records go right up into the 20th century. So it's a long period. A lot of people think they're medieval or something. No, they're not. The greatest period probably is the late 17th, early 18th century but the records do go on into the 20th century. The courts of equity were very interesting in that they dealt with the matter of conscience. They did not look at the law as it stood. They were cases where there was a court where people could take their case to say, look, this doesn't seem fair. Could you please sort it out? Because we haven't got the documents. We can't prove anything. We can't go to a normal court but we want to have something sorted out. The judge would decide on what a good man of moral conscience would say, nothing to do with the law, although obviously the law does come into it. So I think all in all, these records are an absolutely essential source for anyone who's looking at their family history. They are difficult records to look at, but we'll be talking about that a bit later.
0: Lorraine you've done research in using these records some people find the wide variety of them quite confusing what's the best way to approach them do you think?
2: I think from a from a search perspective I think the uh, the National Archives um, Discovery website is uh, the best place to start so searching with a with a surname um, and with my surname being Whale um, it, it's not a common name so I was quite lucky I think the first time I looked at the uh, I looked at the, the database um, some cases came up immediately and it was just it was just okay well let's see if there's anything there in Chancery that I can use to support my own personal research and my ancestors were Cordwainers um, in rural w- Wiltshire, um, Wiltshire and Hampshire. There was an inheritance case that was brought and uh, during the research I found three generations of the Whale family just through looking in one particular chancery record. Um, not only that, I found the uh, the details of the elder George Whale's wife, her father's details, um, and also the fact that when he died, he died intestate, and the widow um, married very quickly afterwards and had basically stolen Mary's inheritance. Um, so it was a bit like a TV drama, actually. So as well as the the, the dates and, and names and ages, you got a feel for who these people were. And I think that's probably one of the nicest things about Chancery Records.
0: Sarah, you've been looking at where we can find indexes and where the best place to find these is in in Discovery. Tell us a bit about Discovery for those people who haven't used it.
3: Discovery is the online catalogue for the National Archives, which is where you can search for some of these records. The best way to search is using the advanced search, using the word chancery with a surname. Place name would also help, and the period in which you're searching. When you go in Discovery website, in the field search, you can type in the letter C, which is the Chancery Court Holdings. Um, they're under, they're all numbered under C. So that will only bring up the chance, should only bring up the chancery records. The problem with it is that if you search just for a surname, you might come up with hundreds and thousands so the best way to do it is to use a surname, place name, and the dates that you're looking for. The other problem with it is the surname that you're looking for might not actually appear in the title of the proceedings. The case of the name can change over the, over time with as parties change and the case moves on. Or it may be just that they've used, for some reason, they've used some completely different names to the name that you're using. Um, the other thing to note is it's only the parties, so they, what we call the plaintiff and the defendants, that are usually named in discovery cert it's unlikely that you're going to find any witness names in there moving on from that perhaps just look at types of documents that you'll find a bill of complaint which is where the plaintiff or the person making the complaint um, sets out their case and that's where you'll often find a lot of the information upon the history the Bill of complaint is written in the words of the actual plaintiff. It's usually written by a lawyer, but in the, in the actual words of the plaintiff. So as Lorraine was saying, it does bring the person to life. Following that, the person responding to the claim is called the defendant, and they would provide what's called a, an answer. So they would answer the points raised by the plaintiff. You can then get um, what's called a replication, which is the plaintiff basically reiterating the case and making a response to the defendant's answer, probably much rarer than um, any of the other documents you'll find. The next stage is what's called the interrogatories, which is when both the plaintiff and the defendant um, draw up a list of questions, which are then put to their chosen witnesses. Each witness would be asked to answer only the questions that are relevant to them, and their response is what's called a deposition. It's often at that stage that you'll find no more documents. The case may well cease at that stage. The defendant may accept the claim and do whatever they've been asked to do. However, following that, if the case moves on, then evidence can be submitted to the court, a copy of a will or a marriage settlement, depending on the type of case, as the court progress the case. But the main ones would be at the end of the case, which would give you the final judgment.
0: People might be quite surprised to know that cases come to chancery that are based on events that might have happened 40, 50 years previously. How does that happen?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely true that cases can last a very long time. I've got one I'm working on at the moment where a case starts in 1820 when somebody makes a will. And this woman wanted to control the future, it seems. So she names everybody that she can think of. But she also says, and all their descendants. And it's a hugely complicated entail so that the land is to follow one person. If that person dies, it goes to their son. If that son has no children, it goes to the brother, and so on, and so on. The case was finally settled in 1898, when the final one single person who was the descendant is left and inherited the property. But as you say, some cases don't, the actual case may not last very long. The average is probably two to three years. But the references at the beginning, each case will start with the word whereas, and they give the background that's where family historians can get the most useful information, because the warehouse can be referring to something 30, 40, 50 years beforehand. In fact, the very best case I ever had from that point of view was actually not specifically family history. It was a case involving the borough of Malmesbury. In the 1820s, the, the Burgesses were accused of embezzling the funds. So they duly recited every single borough charter, and it started, the beginning of the case was whereas in the reign of Edward the Elder. Now, as everybody knows, he is a very, very long time ago, time of King Alfred. So that was my record of how far back any one case can start the information. That particular case then recited every single borough charter from then until the 1820s. Obviously, that is of slightly less interest to family historians. But if you come across a case like that, don't ignore it. This case listed every single Burgess of Malmesbury in the 1550s. So who would think this case was brought in the mid-19th century? Who would think to be looking there for information about the Burgesses of Malmesbury in the 1500s? So these records are very, very name rich. They're full of names. They're full of where people were living at a certain time, which can be incredibly helpful, even if you don't get the relationships. But mainly, I go to these records for the relationship.
0: Brian, you've got some experience on this, I think.
2: Yeah, I am uh, very similar to uh, what Susan was saying about the amount of names and details that you can get from these documents. I was doing some research into a small place near uh, Woking in Surrey. A case had been brought against the Lord of the Manor, and there were witness statements from at least 12 people. This was the 17th century, Um, 12 people within that manor. And it was only a very small manor as well. And the detail that I got from all of those depositions included their names, their ages, whether they'd lived in the in the parish for the whole of their lives, where they had come from before that, uh, which then enabled me to go and find some baptism records because I now knew where my particular person was actually born. There was a lot of incidental information contained in all of those depositions that was really useful for this particular person. And he wasn't actually one of the ones that I was looking for. He wasn't named in the search document at all. So I just put in Woking and just looked through the index and saw that there were a number of witness statements and thought, OK, let's see. It's a very small place. And I was very lucky to find the person that I was looking for. Susan? I was just going to say that if
1: you're looking for a place for a record and you don't happen to find one for your family listed in any of the indexes, don't ignore chancery as a source. Have a look at all the records for that place because they might just refer to somebody in your family. But what they will also do is refer to the disputes that were going on in the village. If your family came from a small village, you want to imagine them sitting around the table of an evening, they've come in from the fields. What are they going to talk about? They're going to be talking about the neighbors and the terrible dispute they're in. And because these records give you a very vivid picture of the personalities of the people, often using the very words that they used. And you find all sorts of really rude things, people being called scumbags and such like, and outright liars and so on. You get some wonderful descriptions of people. And so you can imagine that your ancestors were chatting about this. So you can start to imagine what their lives must have been like.
0: You mentioned, Lorraine, Lord of the Managers crept in here. Susan, there's a, I think some people look at the name Equity and think this is a very grand court for very grand people. And actually, that couldn't be less true.
1: That's absolutely right. Obviously, you do get some very rich people who own a vast amount of land who bring cases. But apart from them, it's just about anybody can bring a case. In fact, one of the equity courts, the Court of Requests, which was current during the 16th and early 17th century, was known as the Poor Man's Court. It was only for people who only had a a very, very small income. But in these records, you'll find that anybody who possibly Owned anything of any sort. So it can be land, it can be a trade. They could well appear in Chancery records. If you lend some money to somebody, and you have to remember there were no banks at the time, if you wanted to borrow money, you borrowed from a friend who you thought you could trust. And there's a great deal in Chancery about, I thought I could trust this man. He hasn't repaid the money. Or he has asked for it, even though I have repaid it. So you also need to remember that it's not just men, it's women as well. Women feature very, very highly in these records. A lot of cases are brought by women, a lot of cases defended by women. And even if the women aren't the principal parties, they feature very highly in the records. There was one case I looked at where a woman had to move out from her family home because her older sister got married. And the new husband moved into the family home, she wanted to go back in and collect her clothes. The new husband wouldn't let her in. So she gets a long description about each item of clothing and whether it was damaged or not by this evil brother-in-law. So again, picture of real people, very modest people. My sort of criteria is if you think the person might have left a will, or possibly there's an administration if they died intestate, almost certainly somebody in the family will be in the chancery court at some stage. But in addition to that, as Lorraine was saying, with the depositions, these people are not the landowners. They're the people giving witness statements. They are absolutely fantastic because you get endless number of agricultural laborers. You get servants. You get people and servants. And I worked for so many years for this person. You also, as Lorraine said, you get the ages. Now, we're all told that everybody died at about the age of 40. Absolute nonsense. I've had many, many cases where the deponents are in their 80s. This is often because they need somebody with a long memory. When you start with the thing, my great-grandfather, somebody has to remember what was it like in great-grandfather's time. And I have once had somebody of 100. So there are plenty of old people living, and they're always very willing to give a witness statement. It's people of all backgrounds, all ages, And children bring cases. They're represented by somebody else, but children will bring cases as well. So it's everybody. It really is a court for absolutely everybody.
0: Lorraine, somebody's found something in Discovery. They've decided to trundle along to the National Archives to have a look. And an archivist plonks in front of them the documents. What are they going to be looking at? What physically are they going to see? And what should they be prepared for when they do go?
2: The first time I ordered some chancery records and went to, trundled off um, to the National Archives, I wasn't expecting to find a box that was probably about three feet long and probably about a foot high. And then inside the box was a, a rolled up document um, you know, not a four-sized piece of paper, but the bundles of documents inside a cloth bag. You really do have to be quite strong to lift them out of the bag. You know, get them out of the cloth bag and then roll them out. You will need weights. You will need weights to actually put them down so that you can read them flat. They're very dirty, so don't wear anything that's white, but they are an amazing source of information for your family history. They are well worth wrestling with. Um, One of the things that you probably will have to do, especially if it's a huge bundle, is to make sure that you photograph it. Um, some Some of the writing is quite small, so bringing it back home and being able to look at it on a large screen is preferable. But you do have to make sure that you get the lines right because you probably have to take three different photographs for one section of the page, but definitely well worth persevering with.
0: We did mention earlier about the fact that these things aren't written in Latin, but there are problems with reading old handwriting, aren't there, which people need to be aware of.
2: If you look at the National Archives website, um, there's a site that actually helps you with the the paleography. And there are plenty of books around that can help you. But I think I've found personally that once I've tuned into the writing, the words kind of leap out at you. Remember those old pictures in the 80s where you used to have to stare at things and pictures would come out at you? I think it's the same with paleography and you need to just tune into it. This
0: wasn't written by the individual concern, was it? If you're looking at a particular document, quite often it's the same handwriting all the way through.
3: These were documents written by lawyers and clerks, so generally you will find the same handwriting or roughly the same handwriting all the way through, which does make it easier to um, read and understand. But you also must remember that not all these documents are together, so all the documents that I mentioned earlier you will find in different places on the uh, catalogue and obviously in, in the record office. Unfortunately, they're not held all together, which would have made life much easier for us if they were. But it does make life a bit harder. But if you find one document and then you'll find another, hopefully you'll be able to read the second a lot easier because you'll be used to the handwriting. Clerks would have changed throughout the case, but their handwriting was probably fairly standard.
0: Susan, what about terms used in those days? Terms about property are quite interesting, aren't they, that you don't see today? Is it good that people look up some of the terms like tenement and this sort of thing to know exactly what they mean when they're talking about perhaps a mortgage on a a particular property?
1: You will find that there are a lot of legal words which are very difficult to understand if you're not used to them. These can be found in dictionaries and these days just use Google to get the answer to find out what the word can mean. And remember as well that lawyers and their clerks were paid by the word, which is one reason why the documents get to be so large, particularly in the 18th and early 19th centuries. You will find that if they can use three, four, five words instead of one, they will do so. So when they're describing a place, they will say that it's commonly called and they'll give the name of the place. And it can be a field. This is also incredibly useful records if you're tracing local history, which I know is not the subject of this podcast, because you do often get every single field being named. But you will get phrases like the tenements and her- hereditaments, and all in singular, the places and all the appurtenances relating to these lands. But the phrases get repeated over and over again. Once you've read them once or twice, you get used to them. They're so common that I have them on autocorrect on my laptop. So I don't type them anymore. Um, I transcribe every document in full because it's very easy to miss a crucial word like did or did not. But I do have things like all in singular. I just have to type S-I-N-G-U. And that gives me the phrase all in singular. And you will also find lots of references to the said mother, the said John Smith. And so TS for me is the said. Again, I don't bother typing that out. And you'll find the spell checker doesn't like it, but they get used to it. Um, and you can teach the spell checker that these are real words.
0: Lorraine, I suppose most people are looking when they're doing their own family history to construct a tree eventually, aren't they, of who's related to who. Do you think this is where equity could be so very useful in creating a family chart or a family tree and knowing who actually belongs to who?
2: I think very often cases, especially if, you know the cases that I've looked at that have been related to inheritance, have they, they describe the relationships. So the case that I referred to earlier um, had George Wales senior, his son, Peter, and then Peter's son George. So and then referring back to what Susan said earlier about who were these people uh, when they've all got their same names. The description really does tell you uh, the differences between the two and who is related to them all. And I think it gives you different information as well. I had no idea that um, Peter Whale actually existed and, and, and was, a, was a relative as well. So that led me off to a different path also in a different county. So that will help to grow the family tree as well. And also knowing George's wife, Mary's maiden name, which uh, was found in the document as well, allowed me to go on to a different um, branch of the family as well. So they are well worth their weight in gold. It's worth persevering them. It's worth being a detective and trying to find the documents because the amount of information that you can find in them really can't be found
0: Anywhere else. Sarah.
3: There's two other finding aids that you can use other than discovery website, and actually they're quite helpful. There's the Burno Index, which was originally a paper card index, which is now available on microfilm at the Society of Genealogists and also at some Latter-day Saints family history centres. The Berno index includes four and a half million individual names or thereabouts. It is worth looking at because it includes the witness names as well as the parties to the proceedings. And you might not find them anywhere else. Unfortunately, though, the films are now quite poor... And the references are hard to understand because they no longer correlate to the uh, references in the TNA catalogue. But there is a book called Sharp's How to Use Burnow Index, which you can consult to help you find the modern references. The other drawback with Burnow's index is variations of spellings of the same name. So you might get one belt in one way on one card and a different way in a different card, but it might actually be the same case. There's also Coldman's index. Which is available at Find My Past website, known as the Inheritance Disputes Index. That's got about twenty-six thousand cases concerning wills, bequests, grants of administration, descent of property, identity claims, and other testamentary disputes, which have all been tried at the Chancery Court. And obviously, being online, that's much easier to search. It's not um, in images of the, the record, so it is only an index, but it obviously helps you find them at, at the TNA. The index itself provides names of the testator, the plaintiff and the defendant, the year of the case, and the uh, TNA reference. And it largely covers the periods 1543 to 1714. You might also find chancery records at um, your local record office. It's always worth having a look.
0: Susan, I think you are a great advocate of people actually transcribing these records if they're actually searching for something specific in them rather than just trying to pick bits out of them. Is that the best way to approach it, do you think?
1: Yes, I think that's absolutely essential. Um, The very first time I ever worked on these records, I was indexing them for somebody. And although I got to understand the story more or less, it's not the same. If you transcribe in full, you can be absolutely certain that you're not going to miss anything. When I was working on my recent book, I used three students Just postgraduates, they were between jobs and they wanted something to do. It was my daughter and two of her friends, and they came to the National Archives and they worked through all the example cases that I use in the book. I said to them, Right, you're going to transcribe in full. They'd never read the handwriting, they'd never seen a chancery record. And I said, While you're doing it, what I'd like you to do is to summarize it as you go in a separate document. And at the end of that, I want a shorter summary. And we're going to have many tea breaks, which I had to do. And I had to feed them cake as well, which was all very good. But I said, at tea breaks, I want a one-line summary. What is the case actually about? And I would recommend that to anybody. There is absolutely no substitute for transcribing in full. If you try and skim through, which I've done, you miss things. You realise that they're talking about the said John Smith. And you say, I haven't seen John Smith. Where's he come? I've obviously missed him. I was skimming through too quickly. So I would always say transcribe in full. It takes time but it's well worth it. It will help your typing skills too. It'll put your speeds up no end and use autocorrect, as I've already mentioned, for the repetitive phrases. Transcribe in full, summary as you go along, a long summary, then a shorter summary, then the tea break, one-line summary.
0: We talked earlier about the equity records, particularly during this eighteenth century and that when the reign that was that's before civil registration. It's before a lot of other documentation that people can refer to. So these really do fill a gap and are well worth the effort, are they not?
2: They're they're definitely well worth the gap. I mean, obviously, you have to do the the research to get to that point, to get to the the 18th and 17th centuries. But once you do get there, you can use chancery records to, um, you know, to clarify your family history um, and also just add some depth
0: to it, too. Sarah, how many times do we come across John Smith names his son John Smith, who names his son John Smith? And I think (laughs) sometimes people did it on purpose to fool modern genealogists.
3: All too frequently, isn't it? I'll give you an example of my surnames I searched on the TNA discovery, actually. My maiden name was Richardson, and um, I found 4,500 references for that. And a lot of those were in Yorkshire. So how I then start to distinguish between them is, uh, yeah... For my married name, Pettifer, there were only four references. Unfortunately, none of them were relevant to our family, but
1: there you go.
0: Oh, no, I can confirm how useful a very unusual surname is.
1: I was just going to say that when we talked about the type of people that appear in these records, I probably should have said as well that not everybody was English. There are a lot of records relating to people in America, a lot of emigrants. You'll find the sort of case where, say, a younger son has emigrated to New England. The family have more or less forgotten about him. A generation later... Somebody dies, leaves some property, but it actually was entailed so that this younger son should inherit. But everyone's forgotten him. He then hears about it. So he will come chasing back to England or send somebody on his behalf to say, actually, that land is mine. And he gives his life history, having been in America. So he tells you exactly where he is in America so he can be identified. And he then names the parish in England where his family are from. So again, that can be very, very useful if you're tracing emigrants. You also find people from Europe appear quite frequently as well. I remember I was asked to write an article on, I think it was for the Jewish family history magazine. So I wanted to find some cases relevant for them. And there was a wonderful one of a woman who was selling silk stockings based in Amsterdam, but using an agent in England. And it seems that the agent had run off with all the money. So this didn't give a huge amount of family history. But if that woman had been your ancestor, it would just be fascinating. She was Dutch. Mm. And so we get quite a bit of the record being given in Dutch, but then with an English translation, um, because the poor court clerks, obviously, they're not going to deal with it being in Dutch. Um, But again, this woman, she came to life. She was real. She was struggling to make a life for herself, selling these stockings and having them basically embezzled by her agent. So, again, a real life person.
0: Sometimes, I think, Susan, a bit of lateral thinking is quite useful, but people might dismiss a case as not being relevant to them. But in actual fact, closer reading would show that it actually is.
1: I'm thinking particularly of a 19th century case that I looked at where the case was to do with a railway company. If you imagine that in the 19th century, railways were being laid everywhere. They were going through people's land and there were all sorts of arrangements that they would supply footbridges for people to be able to get from their farm, say, to their land. This particular case is where the railway company had completely failed to build the bridge and the people couldn't get to their land, couldn't get to their cows um, in order to be able to tend them. And you wouldn't necessarily think of looking at a railway case in order to find out about your family and your family farm. So be imaginative. And also on a slightly different level, if you're dealing with a will, a dispute about a will, the executors are very often the people who are brought to court. So look for the surname of the executors. Look for the surname of the wife's brother's husband's sister sort of thing. You want to go as far sideways as you possibly can to look for every surname that might be connected, and then you might well find that, yes, it does refer to your family, although, as we've already said, their name doesn't necessarily appear in the online index.
0: Well, a good point on which to finish, I think. Well, I hope we've helped your understanding of chancery and equity records and perhaps hopefully remove some of the mystique that for many people still surrounds them. It remains for me to thank our panel, Susan Moore, Lorraine Whale and Sarah Pettifer. Go to our website at agra.org.uk where you'll find more information about what we've discussed in this podcast, a list of useful sources and a directory of agra genealogists, all of whom are assessed by agra's board and work to our code of conduct. Good luck with your future research and may your brick walls tumble.